Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. On behalf of Pastors David and Nicole Binion, thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church. Now, let's listen to today's message. Okay, wow, the king is here. This is Palm Sunday. I want to go through, talk through the Holy Week timeline really quickly because today is the launch of Holy Week. So today is Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. On Monday, Jesus cleanses the temple. You remember that, right? He comes in and turns over the tables and says, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So Monday, Jesus cleanses the, ta- the temple. Maybe throughout your week this week, I encourage you to kind of just think about this. Think about each day and what happened on each day 2,000 years ago. On Tuesday, Jesus confronted the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders, and they began to conspire against him. On Wednesday, Judas was bribed to betray Jesus with 30 pieces of silver. On Thursday, they call Thursday Maundy Thursday, which was the Passover. Jesus had the Last Supper with his disciples. So this is when Judas betrayed Jesus, and this is when Peter denies Jesus. Good Friday, which we're going to be here worshiping on Good Friday. Jesus was crucified on Friday. They were celebrating him on Sunday, and they were crucifying him by Friday. Saturday is called Silent Saturday because Jesus was gone. Jesus was dead. We know, though, that he was taking care of business, getting the keys of death, hell, and the grave. And then Sunday, next Sunday, is Resurrection Sunday. And Jesus was alive. He was crucified on Friday, but on Sunday, he was alive with all power, all power in his hands. And that same power lives on the inside of us if we're born again, right? So that's the Holy Week timeline. And I just encourage you throughout the week just to take to heart each day this week. Um, But um, Palm Sunday is a day of rejoicing that the king is here. He has entered the city of Jerusalem, which was the seat of Jewish leadership and power. And he came to take his rightful place as king. According to the Lexham Bible Dictionary, Hosanna is a liturgical word used in Judaism and Christianity that means save we pray. We find this in Psalms 118. Do y'all have that scripture back there, I think? Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26 says, Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So Hosanna means save now, we pray. 
In Jewish liturgy, this word Hosanna, are y'all ready to learn some things today? We're going to learn some things. Okay. In Jewish liturgy, this word Hosanna is used during a cycle of prayers sung during the Feast of Tabernacles. Once a day during the feast, worshipers would walk around the altar and say, save now, we pray, O Lord. We pray, O Lord, send now prosperity. On the seventh day, it was repeated seven times. So the Hosanna ritual combines the ideas of praising realized victories over the nations and sympathetic prayers for salvation. During the Feast of Tabernacles, when the priest reached a certain point in the ceremony, a trumpet sounded and all the people, y'all got your palm branch, all the people waved branches of palms, myrtles, and willows because the word Hosanna was used during a time of celebration. It became associated with rejoicing as evidenced by its use in the gospels. Yes, Hosanna. It's a, it's a, a praise word. Um, there are not many Hebrew words used in the gospel, so there may be a specific reason that the gospel writers transliterated Hosanna. A few theories by early church fathers and theologians have been proposed. They say this, Hosanna was a prayer to God for assistance from the Messiah. Hosanna is a royal supplication to the Messiah. And Hosanna was a shout of joy. Hosanna. (laughs) So I want to set the scene for Jesus's triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem today. Um, Jesus would have gone to Jerusalem for the feasts and the holy days, but um, most of Jesus's three years of ministry takes place in the region of Galilee. Um, And if you've ever been to the Holy Land, you know that Galilee is about a two-hour bus ride from Jerusalem. So imagine on foot or um, however they were traveling. Um, it definitely was not by a bus or a car. <laughs> it, it was um, quite a journey uh, there. So, But Jesus's ministry took place in the region of Galilee. Galilee is prominent in the gospels as the scene of Jesus's childhood and much of his public ministry. Most of the 12 disciples were from the region of Galilee. The region consists of towns like Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, The town of Capernaum is where Jesus made his home after leaving Nazareth, and he performed some of his greatest miracles in Capernaum and ministered in the synagogue there. If you ever get to go, how many of you have been to the Holy Land? It's amazing to go to Capernaum, and um, I mean, it's amazing to go everywhere there, (laughs) but Capernaum is, um, you you see the remains there of the temple where he would have taught, Um, but Jesus uh, lived in Capernaum. during his ministry years. Bethsaida is another town in the Galilee region. It was a fishing village. Jesus healed a blind man in Bethsaida in Mark chapter eight, verse two. And it was the home of Philip, Andrew, and Peter, three of Jesus's disciples. The city of Cana was in the Galilee region. You know, the wedding at Cana where Jesus turned water into wine. That was his first miracle. Um, By his mother's request, um, And so all of these towns make up the Galilee region where Jesus spent most of his ministry life. So what I want, the reason I'm I'm telling you that, I want you to see now that Jesus begins to shift his focus and his, his eyes turn to Jerusalem. 
And he knows that the time is drawing near, um, that the end of his three years of ministry is about to draw to a close and that he must go to Jerusalem to fulfill his purpose. So we see in Matthew, I'm going to be reading um, this triumphal entry story today from the gospel of Matthew. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 16. There are three times where Jesus foretells, uh, he's telling his disciples what is going to happen to him. Okay. And so the first one in Matthew, we find in Matthew 16, starting at verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So he's, he's, he begins to tell his disciples what's to come, and they are like, no way, this can't happen to you. Um, Matthew chapter 17, we see the second time that Jesus is telling his disciples this. Verse 22, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Matthew 20, chapter 20, verse 17. This is the third time and the final time that Jesus is telling his disciples what's about to happen. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And here's the promise. He will be raised on the third day. So they're going up to Jerusalem. And when you go to Israel, I'm just going to prophesy now that everyone in this room will have the opportunity to go. Um, the, it is an ascent to Jerusalem. So we hear Jesus saying, we're going up to Jerusalem. Um, Jerusalem, it really is a city set on a hill. Um, Jerusalem stands on hills at an elevation of about 2,500 feet. And so Jesus and his disciples ascend to Jerusalem for the Passover. And this is the setting of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Okay. So let's go to Matthew chapter 21, the next chapter. Sometimes I just want to hold it in my hand. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. 
Zechariah, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, (laughs) saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. We'll keep reading in verse 12. This is when Jesus cleanses the temple. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written... My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew when he came to Jerusalem just what he was coming for. Aren't you glad that he said yes to the cross? So as I began my research this week in my handy-dandy Bible software, (laughs) um, I found a sermon by the great Charles Spurgeon from 1891, and his message was called Hosanna. It was on on the the Palm Sunday story. And... um, I'm going to read a little bit of his of, of Spurgeon's words today because they are um, so powerful. I would venture to say, probably not many of us in this room have heard Charles Spurgeon's uh, sermon on uh, Palms, about Palm Sunday. If you have, I want you to raise your hand. Okay, cool. So was there a hand? Cool. Okay. Um, all right. Spurgeon's words are so powerful. I'm going to read what he says about this. After the miracle of the raising of Lazarus, a great fame went abroad concerning our Lord. He rested still at Bethany and the people who came up to the feast in great number went out to see Jesus and to see Lazarus who had been raised from the dead. These people formed a company and marched with Jesus towards Jerusalem upon no stately war horse, but riding upon the foal of a donkey, the meek and lowly king entered the city of David, attended by vast, enthusiastic crowds who spread the large palm leaves and the branches of trees and their own garments in the way along which he rode. 
our Lord thus received a right royal and popular reception to the metropolis of his nation. This was an unusual event, so very different from anything else that happened to our Savior that one wonders at it with great wonderment. That it is to be viewed as an important event is clear since every one of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, takes pains to record it. Assuredly, this honor paid to our Lord was a gleam of sunlight in a day of clouds. A glimpse of summer tide in a long and dreary winter. He that was, as a rule, despised and rejected of men was for the moment surrounded with the acclaim of the crowd. All men saluted him that day with their hosannas, and the whole city was moved. It was a gala day for the disciples and a sort of coronation day for their Lord. Why was the scene permitted? What was its meaning? The marvel of it is that this had not occurred before. For our Lord had healed many sick folk, and these and their friends must have felt favorably towards him. He had fed thousands at a time with the bread of this life, and hosts had been cheered and comforted by his teaching. The common people heard him gladly, and they were ready to gather around him. It was a wonder that they had not long ago taken him by force and made him a king. No one had yet appeared so like the Messiah of their prophets. No one had so well deserved the people's gratitude. It is a marvel that the popular enthusiasm had been repressed for so long. So then the question, why was it re- how was it repressed for so long? Spurgeon is going to answer that for us. It was the Lord himself who had suppressed the popular enthusiasm. With great skill, he had succeeded in bridling a dangerous fanaticism. Scripture says he did not strive nor cry nor cause his voice to be heard in the streets. He preserved quiet and kept the nation from revolt. Had he withdrawn his hand, the people would have been eager to assail their their foreign rulers, which is the Romans. Y'all know that Israel was under um, the oppression of Rome, right? So had this been the errand on which Jesus came, he might at any moment have been saluted as the king of the Jews. But with the masterly art, he repressed everything that would have made him a popular hero. He uttered unpalatable truths, or he stole away from the scene of his miracles, or he kept himself in obscure villages, and thus he escaped their honors. When he had fed the multitudes, he took a boat and went to the other side of the lake so that they might not follow him. Our Lord hid himself from fame and shunned the throne, which by descent belonged to him. He was the son of David, the root of Jesse. The throne belonged to him. He often bid those whom he healed, go home and tell no one what I have done. He went about doing good, scripture says, and did not wait in any place to reap the accolades which his miracles had earned him. No wonder that at last the people felt forced to surround him with their praises. The pent-up fires of gratitude at last had place to vent. 
The covered flames of admiration leaped up at last and cast a brilliant light over the old city. No one before had ever so greatly blessed Judea. 10,000 voices felt it joy to cry Hosanna before such a one. There was great shouting for a while, an abundant spreading of branches and lining of the road with garments. But remember what happened less than a week afterwards. If not the same individuals, yet people of the same city cried, crucify him. The hosannas may be very loud, but they will not be long. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Sounds very sweet. But how much more vehement will be the cry, let him be crucified. Now the Savior rides in state as a king, but soon he walks down those very streets, bearing his cross like a criminal. So we have the triumphal entry story placed before us four times by the gospel writers, and so we must give it attentive consideration. Why would God, what, what, what would God want us to take away from this story? Why the procession? Why the shouts of homage and praise? How should we interpret the scene? God always had a reason for all that he arranged or allowed. Amen? Spurgeon suggests that perhaps one reason that God allowed this scene was that Christ, that we could see Christ triumphant in Jerusalem. Christ triumphant in Jerusalem. Jesus is openly declaring himself as Christ the King. He had frequently told them who he was and why he came, but they would not hear. Now he will assure them of his kingdom by openly riding into the city of Jerusalem in state. Spurgeon writes, our Lord rode into Jerusalem as a king, but he was also brought there as the lamb of God's Passover, whose blood must save the people. It was not fit that the lamb of God should go to the altar without observation. It was not fit that he who takes away the sin of the world should be led to the temple unobserved. The day was near when he was to be offered up and all eyes were called to look at him and know who and what he was. Therefore, he allowed this great gathering and this honorable attention to himself that he might say to Israel by deeds as well as by words, I am he that should come. I have come to do your will, my God. So he, beyond all question, manifested himself to the people. When they crucified him, the rulers knew what he professed to be. They knew that they were crucifying one who professed to be the Lord of glory, one who was acknowledged to be the son of David, one who had in public avowed himself to be king in Zion. The Lamb of God had to be observed. Jesus openly declared himself as king that day. Second, the triumphal entry was Jesus publicly claiming authority over Israel. 
He was the son of David, and therefore he was by natural right the king of the Jews. Did you know that? If he had taken possession of his own, he would have been sitting on the throne of the chosen dynasty of David by right of birth. Both Mary and Joseph were descendants of David. He was also, of course, the Messiah, the son of God. So he was the king of his people, Israel. Concerning him, it had been said by the prophet Zechariah in chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Spurgeon says, our Lord Jesus literally came to Zion in this manner. As king, he rode to his capital and entered his palace. In his priestly royalty, the son of God went to his father's house, to the temple of sacrifice and sovereignty. Although they might afterwards choose Barabbas and cry that they had no king but Caesar, Yet Jesus was their king, as Pilate reminded them when he said, Shall I crucify your king? And as his cross declared when it bore the legal inscription, This is Jesus, king of the Jews. Jesus publicly claimed authority over Israel at the triumphal entry. Next, the triumphal entry took place So that which was spoken by the prophet Zechariah would be fulfilled. I just read that that, that prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9. Jesus took great care to fulfill each prophecy of the Holy Scriptures. He held the inspired word in high esteem and was careful of each letter of it. I was having this thought yesterday, like, have you ever wondered what scriptures Jesus read? I mean, we know the Old Testament, right? So he had the Torah, which contains the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's called the Pentateuch. He had the prophets and he had the Psalter, the the Psalms. So I had this thought yesterday, man, if I ever have difficulty reading the Old Testament, you know, we, we love to read the New Testament. Sometimes the Old Testament can be a little tough to read. Can I get an amen? Am I the only one? Okay. I had this thought that I wanted to meditate on. The Old Testament, the first five books, the prophets, the Psalter. This is the scripture that Jesus studied, loved, and quoted in the Gospels. This is the scripture he defeated Satan with during his temptation in the desert when he said, It is written dot, dot, dot. Many times he quoted the book of Deuteronomy. And this scripture, that Old Testament, those first five books, the prophets, the Psalter, this is the scripture that Jesus fulfilled. 
So if you ever have a hard time digging into the Old Testament, just think, just dwell on that for a little while. Jesus didn't come to eradicate the Old Testament and the law. He came to fulfill it. Oh, that we would value the scripture the way Jesus did. That we would change the course of our thoughts and decisions rather than neglect a single word of the inspired word of God. When we see what the will of the Lord is, let us follow it implicitly. Obedience to the rule of scripture was the way of the head Jesus. If it should also be our way to which we say, this is the way. <laughs> Jesus fulfilled what the prophet Zechariah had prophesied. My next point here, perhaps another reason the Lord allowed this celebration we call Palm Sunday. I love this one. Was to give his friends and followers a day that their savior and king was celebrated. Spurgeon writes, do you not think that the sympathetic Jesus thought it worthwhile to give his little band of followers what our forefathers would have called a high day or a holiday? His followers had been with him in his humiliation and he would give them a taste of his glory. They had seen him despised and rejected of men and he relieved the monotony of his humiliation with a glimpse of his glory. <laughs> For once they should be allowed to cast their garments under his feet and spread fragrant branches on his path. For once their zeal should have license to climb the trees and break down the boughs to make his pathway. <laughs> Nothing on that day filled their ears but the praises of their loved Lord and honored master. They would soon have enough sorrow when they would see him seized in the garden and taken away, bound to Caiaphas and Pilate to be condemned to die. He would give them a breathing space. An interval of pleasure wherein their spirits should no longer drag on earth, but rise on wings into a lofty joy. Our Lord loves his people to be glad. <laughs> his tears he kept to himself as he wept over Jer Jerusalem, but the gladness he scattered all around so that even the boys and girls in the streets of Jerusalem made the temple courts ring with their merry feet and glad songs. <laughs> Hear how they clapped their hands with delight. Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna, you hear it everywhere. And the Lord smiles as he sees the joy which pours in floods around him. The Lord loves to cast into our cup some drops of heaven's own honey. Until the bitterness of grief is sweetened and his followers are made happy by their joy in himself. I was thinking about this yesterday as it pertains to my own life. And maybe you can recall something in your history with the Lord as well. But I was thinking about the dark year that was 2020. <laughs> and I'm so grateful for a bright spot that we had in, in 2020. Our, our son and daughter-in-law got married in August of 2020. 
And it was such a beautiful celebration. It brought so much joy to our family. And um, my mom and dad came from Chicago for the wedding. They didn't want to fly because they were concerned about getting COVID. Do you remember those days? They drove the whole way. And we had a beautiful few days of celebration together as a family. Little did we know that that would be the last time that our family was all together because less than a year later, my dad went home to be with the Lord unexpectedly. And so I look back, we've talked about, my mom and I, David and I, we've talked many times about how grateful we are that we had this time as a family to celebrate. We look at those photos together and we're like, oh my goodness, what a celebration that was. The Lord gave us this beautiful bright spot in the midst of such a tumultuous year. Isn't it just like Jesus to give us some sunshine to hold on to when he knows there are dark days ahead? I think it's so beautiful that he gave his followers this day to celebrate him, that they could lavish their love on him publicly and that he would be celebrated by the entire city. God, you're so good. Lastly, Kareem, you can come on up to the keys. We'll be done a a little earlier today. Why did God allow the triumphal entry celebration? This is a last thought on maybe why he allowed it. I do want to clarify, these were Spurgeon's brilliant thoughts. But they rang so true in my heart. Just as Jesus looked back to fulfill scripture, he also was looking forward giving us a prophetic type of the future. Tanner mentioned it today after worship. He will come again. Jesus was giving us a prophetic type of the, of the future. Dwell church. Jesus will not always be rejected. Even as we look around in culture, we see such chaos, such rejection of truth. We see Jesus rejected, but he will not always be rejected. There are days of triumph (laughs) ahead for him. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And we look forward to his appearing and his reign. Spurgeon writes this. There will come a day when the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. 
he will sit upon the throne of his father David. And of his kingdom, there shall be no end. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Has not Jehovah said to him, ask of me and I shall give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession? Yes, there will come a day when he that was the reproach of men shall be the glory of his people. Kings shall bow down before him. All generations shall call him blessed. When I see that joyful procession going up the hill to Zion and mark how they that went before joined with those who followed after, while the king himself rode in the center, I seem to see a rehearsal <laughs> of the long succession of the faithful in all the ages. The prophets have gone before him. Hark to their loud hosannas. We come behind him, even upon whom the ends of the earth have come. And we have our glad hosannas too. Here, patriarchs join with apostles. Prophets are one with martyrs. And priests keep rank with pastors and deacons, all with one voice lifting up the self-same note, Hosanna. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. We see then in the simple state of our Lord in the streets of Jerusalem, a vision of the long glories which await him in the new Jerusalem, where he shall sit upon his throne and his enemies shall be made his footstool. It's not a fairy tale. <laughs> so Jesus, today as we celebrate your triumphal entry into Jerusalem and all that would lie ahead this week, your sacrifice for us on the cross, the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world, who came to be that great sacrifice for us. You would rip open the veil of separation and we would be given access to your very presence and we would be forgiven of our sin and given power over sin that we would no longer be slaves to sin but you by your sacrifice your death and your resurrection you as we are born again the same power that raised you from the dead would abide on the inside of us giving us power to overcome the enemy And we, your bride, we make ourselves ready for that great day when you will return again. This time, you're not going to come as a baby in a manger. You're not going to come as a king on a donkey. <laughs> Meek and lowly, you will come in power and victory 
And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. There will be a new Jerusalem. And you will rule and reign forever and ever. So today we receive the Lord Jesus Christ with all honors. (laughs) We mention your name with rejoicing. We have our hurrahs ready to welcome the king, the conqueror. As he enters our soul, we are jubilant. We are enthusiastic. We rejoice that such a one as he should come to dwell with such a one like us. We bring blessing to you today, King Jesus. We praise you. We extol you in the highest heavens. And we say, save, Lord. Save. Oh, save. We say, Hosanna in the highest to you, our King. Thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church.